Uh, so for those of you that know me a bit personally, again, my name is Joey Kraft. I serve as one of the pastors here. And for those of you that know me personally a little bit more, you will not be surprised to know that I'm a man of particularities and routines. Uh, and so one of my routines starts as soon as I get up in the morning. Uh, I can't see your face, Rich, so I'm going to pull this down so I can even see as I preach. Um, I, I, I stumble into the kitchen. I, I, I hit the espresso button. I grab my Belvita bars and I sit down at the table with my Bible and I pray and I read. And one of those, one of my constant companions on those days is a book called Every Moment Holy. It's a book of prayers. And the idea is that every moment of life is holy. And so it helps you pray to that end. So there's prayers for doing laundry. There's prayers for watching thunderstorms. There's prayers for loss of electricity. There's prayers for changing diapers. And there's prayers for drinking coffee to settle your heart. And so one of my favorite prayers in that book is, is a prayer that says for the ritual of morning coffee. The prayer goes like this. Meet me, O Christ, in the stillness of this morning. Move me, O Spirit, to quiet my heart. Mend me, O Father, from yesterday's harms. From the discords of yesterday, resurrect my peace. From the discouragement of yesterday, resurrect my hope. From the weariness of yesterday, resurrect my strength. From the doubts of yesterday, resurrect my faith. From the wounds of yesterday, resurrect my love. Let me enter this day new, aware of my need, and awake to your grace, O Lord. Amen. And I love this prayer because it's both honest and it's hopeful. How this prayer doesn't minimize or ignore our troubles, yet it doesn't leave us in them either. It moves us from pain to promise, from wounds to worship. And this type of prayer strikes a chord with my soul. And my guess is... It does with many of you as well. And this type of prayer is simply modeled after what we find in the book of Psalms in Scripture. And so the Psalms are a collection of 150 songs or poems. And traditionally, the, the Psalms are what we call part of the wisdom literature of Scripture. The Old Testament is broken down into the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the writings are that wisdom literature that tell God's people how to flourish inside of God's covenant. And so the Psalms give us language for every season of the soul. They're filled with praise, lament, thanksgiving, hope. The Psalms provide comfort and counsel. They instruct us in how to live a happy and a holy life, no matter what we face. And so for the next several weeks, we'll be in the Psalms together. This morning, we'll be in Psalm chapter 3. But before we jump in, let me remind us of something about the Psalms. The way we shape, the way it shapes the way we read the Psalms. It's important to realize the book of Psalms isn't primarily about us. Like scripture, it's pointed to and centered upon the person and the work and the worth and the beauty and the brilliance of Jesus. And the Psalms are not some haphazard collection of poems that are randomly placed together just to, there to help us process our emotions. No, this, the book of scripture, the Psalms has a theological shape. One psalm leading to and connecting to the next. So our ultimate gaze isn't upon us, but upon the Lord. We could say that the psalms could be summarized by saying, the Lord is king. The happy and holy life is found delighting in and following him. And so we see this in the way the book of Psalms opens. So with your Bibles there in front of you, we can see that Psalm 1 and 2 are kind of an introduction to the book. Like a preface to a book, Psalms 1 and 2 help us orient to what follows in the rest of what we call the Psalter. And you'll notice the first word of the Psalms is what? Psalm 1 would. It is blessed. It's the first word. 
And then if you look at the end of Psalm 2, verse 12, you'll see it ends with blessed. Blessed are all those who take refuge in the Lord. So right at the beginning, the bookends of Psalm 1 and 2, the introduction are about the blessed life and inviting us into it. Psalm 1, the blessed life is found by delighting in and meditating on the law of the Lord. In Psalm 2, that law leads us to God's promised son, the Messiah, the King. And so the book of Psalms begins by telling us the blessed life is found as we meditate upon the word of God that leads us to the son of God. And in him, we have refuge. So Psalm 2.12 takes us right into Psalm chapter 3. Hear the word of God. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. It's the word of God, beloved. So the big idea of Psalm chapter 3 could be said, when the troubles of life threaten to hold you down, trust the Lord to lift you up. Or, more simply, verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Three movements will help us unpack this big idea. Realize troubles will come, verses 1 and 2. Remember who the Lord is, verse 3. Rehearse what the Lord does, verses 4 through 8. Realize troubles will come. We, we see from the, the superscript of this psalm is written by David, the anointed king by God. He is the author of 73 of the psalms and 13 of them have a historical reference like this one. And so we're told that this psalm comes from the pen of David as he flees his son Absalom. Uh, we learn of these tragic events back in 2 Samuel chapters 14 through 17. Maybe go read that this afternoon. But you'll even want to go back a little bit further to 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 because that's when it really starts. It's in those chapters we read of King David who used his power to abuse and take advantage of another woman, Bathsheba. And then David used his power to cover, try to cover up his immorality by having her husband Uriah murdered. David is confronted by a prophet, Nathan, and David repents. And the Lord mercifully forgives him. And yet, he says, there'll be consequences for your sin. So the Lord tells David, listen. You're forgiven, but the consequences of your sin, your family is going to be torn apart going forward as a consequence of your sin. And this becomes true as we see Absalom turn against his father and try to take his throne. And we read in 2 Samuel 14 through 16, here are some excerpts so you feel 
the weight of what's happening. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. The king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan. And perhaps it's here that David pens this psalm. And I think it's important to realize, beloved, that as I said, the psalms have a theological shape. And so it's no coincidence that after we learn about the blessed life, the first thing we find is the blessed life isn't one free of trouble. We're only three psalms in and all hell is breaking loose upon the blessed man even. And like David, our lives are a complex mixture of sin and sin against us. To be sure, every opposition, every hardship is not the result of our sin. Sometimes we're opposed, we're accused because of our godliness. David faces both kinds of troubles and so will we. Notice the repetition of many in this passage. How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul. And look at verse 6. You get another. Many are against me. David's heart was broken because friends have become foes. They are active and they are accusing. There is no salvation in God for you, David. The people... David knew, loved, and trusted are now telling him, God will not deliver you from your circumstances. And it seems they're saying something even deeper, because notice what they're saying. They're saying of his soul. Has God rejected David and abandoned him? Has David outsinned God's mercy and grace? And for a moment, maybe David wondered if this was true. I mean, his family literally was like a Jerry Springer episode. It was absolutely crazy. Rape, murder, abandonment, plotting, schemes, betrayal. And maybe David was tempted to believe there is no help. There is no hope. How about you? Perhaps someone has told you, you're not, you're not good enough to be a Christian. Because of that thing that happened to you, there's no way that God could love you. Or perhaps it's the voice of the great enemy, the evil one who whispers to your soul. And you begin to have doubts fixated on self-accusations. And you end up saying to yourself, there is no salvation for me and God. I know how bad I've messed up. God could not love someone like me. There is no salvation for me in Don't believe the lie. Recognize that verse 2 is only the beginning of the psalm. It's the first word, but it is not the last word. Maybe some of you are wondering, Joey, this is all helpful. Thanks for the reminder. But, you know, how does this really really apply to me? Um, No one's telling me God doesn't love me. My children aren't saints, but they're also not trying to start a coup and overthrow our home and take my life. What do we do with this? 
Let's say, even so, beloved, you may still be opposed and hear these types of accusations. Beloved, you need to know that the world, perhaps even those you call friends, family members, classmates, co-workers, neighbors, will look at what we believe, they'll hear who we say is king, and they'll tell us, there's no salvation in that God. What we believe, beloved, is becoming not just strange, but increasingly seen as unloving, bigoted, narrow-minded, hateful even. One wrong word and you get canceled. When we hold to the biblical teachings on marriage, gender, sexuality, the exclusivity of Christ, his sin-paying death, his physical resurrection, the literal place of eternal hell, the dignity of human life from the womb to the tomb, the equality of all ethnicities. When we hold these truths, even with grace and humility, we will face opposition. And let me be clear, this is not an excuse for you to be mean or arrogant or dismissive. Jesus isn't shown to be beautiful if you're a jerk, even if you're right. We are to have convictions, firm, robust, biblical convictions. And we hold them with kindness. And even when we do, don't be surprised when people say, There is no salvation in that God. In fact, that is no God at all. Some friends will oppose you. Family members might oppose you. So one way or the other, all of us will know what it's like to face troubles, to be betrayed, to have dreams die. And in those moments, what will you do? What will you do? Here's what David does. He remembers who the Lord is. We move from realizing our troubles to remembering who the Lord is. Look again at verse 3. But you, O Lord. Notice the contrast. But you. David takes his eyes off his enemies and directs his gaze to the Lord. Again, this but you does not deny or minimize his troubles. It only puts them into perspective. A saint of old said that living life in times of troubles is like having your face smushed against a stained glass window. You feel the pressure, you see sharp edges and shards of glass, and all you see is blurry things. But the moment you step back is when you see the beauty of it all. And it's as if in verses 1 and 2, David's face is smushed against the stained glass window. But in verse 3, he steps back and says, but you, O Lord, and he sees the beauty of who his God is. And notice That word LORD is in all caps. He's using the personal, intimate, covenant name of God. How God revealed himself personally to his people. And this is the one to whom David calls out repeatedly. Notice there in your Bibles, six times in this psalm, six times in eight short verses, he calls upon the name of the LORD. In fact, did you notice it's the first word of this psalm? LORD. What captures David's attention is not his enemies, his troubles, but his Lord. And David remembers and calls upon the Lord and he says, Lord, you're three things for me. You're the shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. And again, notice the personal nature of this. Notice the words me and my. 
This is not the language of one forsaken by God, but one who has a personal relationship with God. See, what David says cannot be reduced to generic feel-good platitudes. That's if he was walking through the, the, the aisle of CVS and plucked off a Hallmark card. That's not what he's doing. This is personal. This is intimate. And so, friend, if you want the hope David has, you need to be able to say, the Lord is my shield, my glory. The Lord is the lifter of my head. And we must, how can we say that? How does David have the audacity to say that? Is it because he's good enough? We know that's not the case. His life is a train wreck in many ways. Does he have to build up enough karma, good religious deeds? No. How do we approach this God? The same way David did. But you, oh Lord. That's how we do it. As I was reading this psalm this week, I was reminded of Ephesians chapter 2. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And if we stop there, left to ourselves, we are separated from God. Our sin is worse than we think. Our enemy rises against us. Satan, the accuser, delights heaping shame and sorrow. And if that's all we read, we'd have to conclude there is no salvation for us. The story doesn't end there. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him. But God, in his unfathomable, lavish grace, has promised salvation and refuge from our greatest enemy, Satan, sin, and death, to all who would come to him through Christ Jesus. Christ died for sin on the cross. He took punishment we deserve. He paid the price we owe. He was dead and buried. But God... But God raised him from the dead on the third day. But God, sin is paid. But God, guilt is canceled. But God, shame removed. Now all who confess Christ can say, the Lord is my shield. The Lord is my glory. The Lord is the lifter of my head. Friend, if you want to know more about this, If you want to know more, how can I say this? Talk to the friend who brought you. Or come talk to me or Chris or anybody else that's a member of this church. We'd be happy to talk to you about the but God, but Lord of the gospel of Christ. And for you, my beloved Christian brothers and sisters, remember who the Lord is. First, he's a shield about you. Or as some translations might say, a shield all around you. See, a typical shield only covers part of the body externally. But the Lord is a shield that covers every part of us, outside and inside. He is our sovereign, complete, unfailing protection. We will face trials and troubles in this life, but he will protect us and he will make sure we get home. We are bound, beloved. We are bound for the promised land and God will make sure all his children arrive on those golden shores. He is your shield and he is your glory. 
David knows that his honor, his glory, isn't defined as position of king. It's not defined what others say to him or think about him. In this moment, he lost his throne, but not his dignity. He lost his throne, but not his worth. He is secure. Beloved brothers and sisters, when who the Lord is is worth more than what you have, you can lose a lot and still be okay. When who the Lord is is more important than your status, your position, what people say to you, you are secure. Who you are, your glory, your honor, your worth, what's most true about you cannot be taken and cannot be distorted. It's secured by a cross and an empty tomb. Your honor rests on God. That's your truest identity. So remember, beloved, remember the Lord is your glory. And remember, he's the lifter of your head. Imagine the shame, embarrassment, and discouragement David must have felt. His sin is deep. His family is a wreck. His throne is taken. Many of his friends have rejected him. And I can just imagine David sitting there disheveled, discouraged, head between his knees, thinking, how will I make it through this? I'm fleeing for my life. I feel like I'm alone. This isn't the way it's supposed to be. He was so overtaken by sadness, he couldn't bring himself to lift his head. But there's one who could do that for him. The Lord is the lifter of my head. It's the language of encouragement and intimacy. So imagine a father walking to the room of a child who's overcome by sadness. The father kneels by the child's bed, cups his son, cups his daughter's face in his hands, and he wipes away the tears as he lifts the chin, lifts the face. And he looks into their eyes, he says, I know, son, it's hard. Daughter, I know it's challenging. It's not okay now, but it will be okay. I promise. Trust me. Do you see that God is no distant deity? He's a tender father. He knows the hairs on your head. He will not forget the tears on your face. He will lift your face that he might wipe them away and encourage you to keep on going. You can get through this, the lifter of my head. So when the troubles of life threaten to hold you down, trust the Lord to lift you up. In Psalm 3, he's pleading this, pleading with us, will you remember who the Lord is? Because our hope comes not from a change in our circumstances, but in the unchanging character of our Lord. That's where our hope is. A few weeks ago, I read the remarks of a pastor who found himself trying to find the words to comfort his grieving church after a horrible tragedy snuffed out two lives of college girls. Tragedy. You may have heard of it. It was a church in Cornerstone Church in Ames, Iowa. Tragic. And he said to his church, the church can't be marked by the message of death when she has the one who conquered death. We're going to celebrate the resurrection with tears. We're going to trust in God who is bigger than our pain. And listen to this. We aren't going to act like our pain isn't real. It is. But we also aren't going to act like God isn't real because he is. 
Psalm 3, David agrees. Our pain is real, but so is God. Our enemies are many, but the Lord is mightier still. Will you remember him? Will you remember him? He's your shield. He's your glory. He is the lifter of your head. And as you remember him, rehearse what the Lord does. Based on who the Lord is in verse 3, we begin to see how David acts in verses 4 through 6. And as he acts, we see how the Lord acts, what the Lord does. David cries out, the Lord answers. David sleeps, the Lord sustains. David prays, the Lord saves. What does the Lord do? The Lord answers. Look again at verse 4. I cried out to the Lord. I cried out aloud to the Lord. Notice the fervency. I cried. I cried out. I cried out aloud. I cried out loud to the Lord. This isn't a half-baked air prayer that he throws up while he's making breakfast. Right? We have crying and then we have ugly crying. This is an ugly cry type of plea. Crying out to the Lord. We'll see the content of his prayer in verse 7 in a minute. But for now, see this. He answered me from his holy hill. The Lord answers. This is what the Lord does. The Lord answers his children. And he answers David from where? The holy hill. What's up with that? Well, the holy hill is the rightful place of the king. You look in Psalm 2, verse 6. God says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God promised David he would be king. And David is recalling this promise as he thinks about the holy hill. God is recalling God's promise and his past grace and says, God, you've answered me. Your promises will not be thwarted. And the holy hill is the place of God's presence signified by the Ark of the Covenant. It's where the covenant was. So we can say the holy hill signifies God's promises and God's presence. Even though David has been banished from the throne, God's promises and presence remain and he knows it. David might be on the run, but God is still on the holy hill. God is still on the throne. And David knows nothing can thwart his promises. Nothing can take away his presence from me. And that seems to be the the answer David gets. In this psalm, he does not get new information. He does not get an immediate change in his situation. David's help and hope come as he remembers the Lord's promises and presence. I think it's worth noting that David does not complain here. He cries out. He cries out. So when adversity enters into your life, do you find yourself complaining more to others or crying out to the Lord? When crisis comes, do you spend more time plotting how to make your life more comfortable or praying to the one who can ultimately deliver? What is your instinct? What is your disposition? Beloved, rehearse what the Lord does. He answers prayers. Sometimes he answers exactly how we want. Often he gives us what he gave David, his promises and his presence. And he says, that's enough. The Lord answers prayers and the Lord sustains souls. Look at verse five. David says, he lays down And he sleeps. This is an admission of weakness. This is an admission, I am not in control. But my confidence 
is the one who is in control. David must have read Psalm 121 verse 3. It says, he who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. I wonder if David read that and be like, God, if you're going to stay awake all night, I don't need to. I'm just going to go to sleep. There's no reason for both of us to stay awake. And so I am going to go to sleep. That's what David does. That's what David does. He goes to sleep. And what happens? I woke again. Why? For or because the Lord sustained me. With the fragility of David's situation, you think he'd be up pacing the floor all night. If not, tossing and turning in the bed, right? How many times have we been there? So filled with worry, with anxiety. We, we can't even, we're, we're so frail, we can't even go to sleep. But that's not the picture here. David has stability in the midst of adversity because he knows the Lord sustains him. Well, you'll know, many times I've talked to or counseled some of you and I'll pray. You might've heard me pray like, God, give them a good sleep tonight. That's kind of a weird prayer. Just praying what David does, that your confidence might be in God. So much so that you can just sleep trusting in him. And because of this, verse 6, what does David say? I will not be afraid. Does David have reasons to be afraid? Yeah. Does David have reasons to be filled with fear? Yes. David has reasons to be consumed of the whatabouts of the past and the what-ifs of the future. He has reasons. But David does not let his mind and heart play that game. Notice what he says. He does not say, I am not afraid. That's not what the text says. What does the text say? Somebody say, what does the text say? What does the text say? I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. David is telling himself. Based on who God is, I will not be afraid. Yes, there are reasons to fear. Yes, there are reasons to be afraid. But I will not be afraid because I know who God is and I know what God does. He's talking to himself, telling himself what is true, not just letting his emotions take over. And he knows God is so intimately concerned that he sustains him while he sleeps. David has confidence. How about you? When you fear being rejected, will you trust the Lord because he accepts you and then go to sleep? When you fear injustice, will you trust the Lord because he's a God of perfect justice and then go to sleep? When you fear being alone, will you trust the Lord that in Christ he's promised he will never, no, never leave you? When you fear the future, will you trust the Lord that heaven is just ahead? When you fear the darkness of death, will you trust the Lord because he's the light of life? As you read scripture, look at the character of the Lord and then map that onto your life as it helps you gaze upon Christ the King. As you disciple one another, as you meet in community groups over coffees and dinner tables, identify the past evidences of grace in each other's life. That you might call to mind God's goodness and mercy as you look for future grace. And know the Lord sustains his children. The Lord answers prayers, the Lord sustains, and the Lord saves. In verse 7, we finally get the content of David's prayer. Look at those words again, verse 7. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth 
of the wicked. Simply put, David is calling on the Lord to save him. It's interesting, the Lord hasn't done this, but David's so confident that he will, he prays, you will do it. You will do it. And the content of David's prayer might make us a bit uncomfortable, right? Strike my enemies, break the teeth of the wicked. Right, David, can you, can you say that? I, I thought God was merciful and loving. And he is. And he's also a God of justice. Remember who David is talking about. Enemies, people who have rejected the Lord's anointed and are trying to usurp the kingdom of God and lead others astray while they do it. It's uncomfortable for sure, but maybe it's uncomfortable to us because David takes right and wrong, righteousness and rebellion more seriously than we do. Maybe that's the case. See, as we see in Psalm 1 and 2, there's only two ways to live. The way of the righteous that leads to eternal joy in the presence of God or the way of the wicked, which leads to perishing in everlasting judgment. And David is saying, oh Lord, if these enemies of mine, if these enemies of yours do not repent, bring your justice, fulfill your promises, vindicate your king for the sake of your name and your people. If you think about it, David is just praying how the Lord taught us to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. That's what David is praying. Your kingdom come. And notice he's not taking personal vengeance. This isn't about King David. It's about the Lord. It's about the Lord's kingdom. And it's about the Lord's people. David is asking the Lord to fight this battle on behalf of the people of God for the glory of God. That's his concern. It's not a petty personal injustice that he's worried about. He's worried about the glory of God's name and the good of God's people. We, we see that in verse 8. Look at verse 8. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. That's his concern, the people of God. Verse 8 is the bedrock foundation under everything David has said in this psalm. His hope in life and death is the Lord alone. And his concern is not just for himself, but for all of God's people. And do you notice the reversal of this psalm? It begins with David's enemies rising up against him. It ends with the Lord rising up against David's enemies. It begins with people accusing There is no salvation in God, and it ends with David praising, salvation belongs to the Lord. It begins with God's king being cursed by man. It ends with all of God's people being blessed by God himself. It begins in pain, it ends in praise. It begins in sadness, it ends in celebration. It begins in tears, and it ends in triumph, a complete reversal. And beloved, this is our story. Except we once were Absalom. We rejected the king. We rejected the Lord's anointed. But you, O Lord, but you, O Lord, 
God was so committed to the salvation of his people that his anointed king became his enemy. But God, but God, so friend, for my non-Christian friend here this morning, if you want this to be your story too, you need to confess your rebellion against God and trust Christ alone to be reconciled back to God. Because here's the story. In Psalm 3, the king's life was spared while the enemies were judged. But in Jesus, the king's life was taken so his enemies might be spared. What the Lord protected David from, Jesus willingly submitted himself to, that we might have hope, that we might have salvation. Unlike David, Jesus lived a perfect life. But like David, Jesus had many foes. Think about this. Psalm 3 is the story of Jesus. One of his closest betrayed him. He was rejected by God's people. He was forced out of Jerusalem. Jesus walked up the Mount of Olives, barefoot and weary. He was struck on the cheek. He was hung on a cross and he was told, there is no salvation for you. If you are the son of God, then come down from that cross. And Jesus cried aloud from the holy hill, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there was no answer. Only silence is Christ paid the penalty for sin, absorbing the wrath of God. Jesus was crucified, dead and buried, and he lay down and he slept. He slept the sleep of death. But God, but God, but God raised him on the third day and sustained him. And we shout, arise, O God, and save me. Your blessing be upon your people. A complete reversal. The king of glory left the throne of heaven to hang on a wooden cross. A complete reversal. God's beloved son willingly treated as God's enemy. A complete reversal. The one who never sinned died to pay the penalty of sin. A complete reversal. The one who died rose again. A complete reversal. The one who was buried in a tomb on earth now sits on a throne in heaven. A complete reversal. We, the enemies of God, once like Absalom, are now adopted sons and daughters. A complete reversal, beloved. Troubles will come. What will you do when they do? Will you remember who the Lord is? Will you rehearse what the Lord does and promise to do? We will face trials and tears. But one day, beloved, a complete reversal is coming. Heaven on earth. Everything sad becomes untrue. We are bound for the promised land. No more tears. No more foes. No more enemies. God's presence, God's promises, God's people together forevermore and evermore. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Arise, O God, and save us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we marvel 
That's the beauty and wonder of your word. Oh, how I wish I could explain all that's there. Oh, how I wish I could more accurately and beautifully explain the riches of Christ. So Holy Spirit, take these feeble words and help us see and savor Christ, the King, the Son. Help us when faced with many, many foes to be so captivated by Christ. We say he's our glory. He's our shield. He's the lifter of our head. Take the words of Psalm 3, Holy Spirit, and press them into our souls so that we might lift our heads no matter what we face. I pray for those here that are facing acute troubles that you might minister to them, that these words might be a comfort, that you would even give them sleep tonight. God, give us sleep as an act of confidence in you. I pray for those gathered this morning that are not trusting Christ, that they would see the beauty of Jesus, the wonder of the hope and help of salvation. They would see that Christ is worthy to receive praise and they would repent and trust in him. God, do this work, we pray, for the glory of Christ. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.